Welcome to Word Theater. I'm your host, Cedaring Fox, and we're here each week to share wonderful stories from our 20-year archive of live performances with you. Please note that Word Theater holds the copyright to these recordings, so no portion of anything you hear may be reproduced without permission. This week marks the three-year anniversary of our Word Theater Short Story podcast, and we would love to get some feedback from you, our listeners. Simply shoot us an email at admin at wordtheater.org with any comments or requests. Everything you hear has been recorded live, and I seem to remember so many of these performances quite vividly. I found myself entranced by our dear friend Xander Berkeley's rendition of Rastro's Island by T.C. Boyle a favorite author around here. Allow Xander to send chills down your spine as he calls you all to the island and introduces you to the people who inhabit it. The island and everyone on it seem to cling to the past, refusing to give it up. Brace yourselves for the tangled world of Rastro's Island. Rastro's Island. A car radio bleats, love, oh, careless love. Robert Lowell, Skunk Hour. She called, and he was ready, if not eager, to sell, because he'd had certain reverses. The market gone sour. Ruth in bed with something nobody was prepared to call cancer. And his daughter, Charlene, waiting for his check in her dorm room with her unpacked trunk full of last year's clothes and the grubby texts with the yellow scars of the used sickers seared into their spines. That's right, she said, her old lady's voice like the creak of oarlocks out on the bay in the first breath of dawn. Mrs. Rastro, Alice Rastro, and I used to know your mother when she was alive. There was a sharp, crackling jolt of static, as if an electrical storm were raging inside the wires. Then her voice came back at him. I never have put much confidence in relatives. Do you want to talk or not? So go, Ruth said. Her face had taken on the shine and color of the elephant ear fungus that grew out of the sodden logs in the ravine at the foot of the park. Don't worry about me. Just go. You know what she's doing, don't you? I know what she's doing. I never wanted to sell the place. I wanted it for Charlene, for Charlene's kids, to experience it the way I did, to have that, at least. He saw the house then, a proud, two-story assertion of will from the last century. Four rooms down, four rooms up. The wood paintless now and worn to a weathered silver. The barn subsiding into its angles in a bed of lichen-smeared rock. The hedges gone to straw in the absence of human agency. When was the last time? Two summers ago? Three? It's just a summer house. She reached out a hand you could see right through and lifted the rimmed glass from the night table. He watched the hand tremble, fumble for the pills, and he looked away, out the window, and down the row of townhouses and the slouching copper-flagged maples. Isn't that the first thing to go when you... Yeah, he said, yeah, I guess. guess it is. I mean, and she paused to draw the water down, gulp the pills. It's not as if we really need the place or anything. 
The water was choppy, the wind cold, and he sat in his car with the engine running and the heater on full as the ferry slammed at the seething white royal of the waves and the island separated itself from the far shore and began to fan out across the horizon. When the rain came up, first as a spatter that might have been nothing more than the spray thrown up by the bow, and then as a moving scrim that isolated him behind the wheel, he thought of switching on the windshield wipers, but he didn't. There was something about the opaque windows and the pitch of the deck tugging at the corners of the light that relaxed him. Could have been underwater, in a submarine, working his way along the bottom of the bay through the looming tangle of spars and timbers of the ships gone to rack a hundred years ago. He laid his hand idly on the briefcase beside him. Inside were all the relevant papers he could think of, the deed signed in his father's ecstatic rolling hand, termite, electrical, water rights. What did she care about termites, about water, dry rot? She wasn't going to live there. She wasn't going to live anywhere but the whitewashed stone cottage she was entombed in now, the one she'd been born in. And after that, she had her place reserved in the cemetery beside her husband and her two drowned children. She must have been 80, he figured, 80 or close to it. Ronald Rastrow. He was a violinist. Or no, a violist. And his sister, Elise. At night, in summer, above the thrum of the insects and the listless roll of the surf, you could hear his instrument tuned to some ancient sorrow and floating out across the water. He was 22 or 3, a student at Juilliard, and his sister must have been 20 or so. They went sailing under a full moon, rumors of a party on shore and Canadian whiskey and marijuana, the sea taut as a bedspread, a gentle breeze out of the east, and they never came back. He was 12 the summer it happened, and he used to thrill himself leaning out over the stern of the dinghy till the shadows of his head and shoulders made the sea transparent and the dense architecture of the bottom rushed up at him in a revulsion of disordered secrets. He remembered the police divers gathered in a dark clump at the end of the pier, volunteers, adults, Kids in sailboats, Curtis Mayhew's father and his fishing boat fitted out with a drag line, working up and down the bay as if he were plowing it for seed. It was a lobsterman who found them, both of them, tangled in his lines at the end of a long, cold week that was like December in July. He drove along the shore, past the salt box cottages with their weathered shingles and the odd frame house that had acquired a new coat of paint, the trees stripped by the wind, nothing in the fields but pale dead stalks and the refulgent slabs of granite that bloomed in all seasons. There were a few new houses clustered around the village, leggy things architecturally wise, but the gas station hadn't changed or the post office general store or Dorcas's house of clams closed for the season. The woman behind the desk at the seaside rest, sep units avail by day or week, took his money and handed him the key to the last cottage in a snaking string of them. 
Though none of the intervening cottages seemed to be occupied, that struck him as a bit odd. She must have marked him down for a drug fiend or a prospective suicide. But it didn't bother him, not really. She didn't recognize him and he didn't recognize her. Because people change and places change and what once was will never be again. He entered the cottage like an acolyte taking possession of his cell. Cold little box of a room with a bed, night table, and chair. No TV. He spent half an hour down on his knees worshiping the AC heater unit, but could raise no more than the faintest stale exhalation out of it. At quarter to one, he got back in the car and drove out to Mrs. Rastro's place. There was a gate to be negotiated where the blacktop gave way to the dirt drive, and then there was the drive itself, unchanged in 200 years. A pair of beaten parallel tracks with a yellow scruff of dead vegetation painted down the center of it. He parked beneath a denuded oak, went up the three stone steps and rang the bell. Standing there on the doorstep, the laden breeze in his face and the bay spread out before him in a graceful arc to Coulson's head, where the summer house stood amidst the fortress of trees like a chromatic miscalculation in a larger canvas, he felt the anxiety let go of him. Eased by the simple step-by-step -step progress of his day, the business at hand, the feel of the island beneath his feet. She hadn't mentioned a price, but he had a figure in mind, a figure that would at least staunch his wounds, if not stop the bleeding altogether. And she had the kind of capital to take everything down to the essentials. Everybody knew that. Mrs. Rastro. Alice Rastro, widow of Julius, the lumber baron. He'd prepared his opening words and his smile, cool and at ease, because he wasn't going to be intimidated by her or let her see his need. And he listened to the bell ring through the house that was no mansion, no showplace, no testament to riches and self-aggrandizement, but just what it was. And he pictured her moving through the dimness on her old lady's limbs like a deep-sea diver in his heavy, confining suit. A moment passed, then another. He debated, rang again. His first surprise, the first in what would prove to be an unraveling skein of them, was the face at the door. The big, pitted brown slab of oak pulled back, and Mrs. Rastro, ancient, crabbed, the whites of her eyes gone to yellow and her hair flown away in the white wisps of his recollection, was nowhere to be seen. A young Asian woman was standing there at the door, her eyes questioning, brow wrinkled, teeth bundled beneath the neat bow of her lips. Her hair shone as if it had been painted on. I came to see Mrs. Rastro, he said, about the house. The woman, she looked to be in her late 20s, her body squeezed into one of those luminous silk dresses the hostess in a Chinese restaurant might wear, showed no sign of recognition. He gave her his name. We had an appointment today, he said, for one, still nothing. He wondered if she spoke English. 
I mean, me and Mrs. Rastro. You know Mrs. Rastro. Do you work for her? She pressed a hand to her lips in the flurry of painted nails and giggled through her fingers, and the curtain dropped. She was just a girl, pretty, casual, and she might have been standing in the middle of her own dorm room sharing a joke with her friends. It's just, you look like a potato peeler salesman or something standing there like that. Her smile opened up around even white teeth. I'm Rose, she said, and held out her hand. There was a mud room, flagstone underfoot, firewood stacked up like breastworks on both sides, and then the main room with its bare oak floors and plaster walls. A few museum pieces, tatted rug, a plush sofa with an orange cat curled up in the middle of it. Two lamps, their shades as thin as skin, glowed against the gray of the windows. Rose bent to the stove in the corner, opened the grate, and laid two lengths of wood on the coals. And he stood there in the middle of the room, watching the swell of her figure in the tight wrap of her dress and the silken flex and release of the muscles in her shoulders. The room was as cold as a meat locker. He was watching Rose, transfixed by the incongruity of her, bent over the black stove in her golden Chinese restaurant dress that clung to her backside as if it had been sewn over her skin. And the old lady's voice startled him for all the pep talk he'd given himself. You came, she said. And there she was in the doorway looking no different from the picture he'd held of her. She waited for him to say something in response. And he complied, murmuring, Yes, sure, it's my pleasure. And then she was standing beside him and studying him out of her yellowed eyes. Did you bring the papers, she said. He patted the briefcase. They were both standing as if they'd just run into one another in a train station or the foyer at the theater. And Rose was standing, too, awaiting the moment of release. Rose, she said then, her eyes snapping sharply to her, fetch my reading glasses, will you? The car had developed a cough on the drive up from Boston, a consumptive wheeze that rattled the floorboards when depressed at the accelerator, and now, with the influence of the sea, it had gotten worse. He turned the key in the ignition and listened to the slow seep of strangulation, then put the car in gear, backed out from beneath the oak, and made his hesitant way down the drive, wondering how much they were going to take him for this time when he brought it into the shop, if he made it to the shop, that is. There was no reward in any of this. He'd tried to keep the shock and disappointment from rising to his face when the old lady named her price. But at least for now, there was the afternoon ahead and the rudimentary animal satisfaction of lunch, food to push into his maw and distract him. And he took the blacktop road into the village and found a seat at the corner in the diner. There were three other customers. The light through the windows was like concrete, like shale, the whole place hardened into its sediments. He didn't recognize anyone, and he ate his grilled cheese on white with his head down, gathering from the local newspaper that, gathering from the local newspaper that the creatures had deserted the sea en masse and left the lobstermen scrambling for government handouts and the cod fleet stranded at anchor. 
he'd countered the lady's offer, but she'd held firm. At first, he thought she hadn't even heard him. They'd moved to the store. I'm going to go back. He'd countered the old lady's offer, but she had held firm. At first, he thought she hadn't even heard him. They'd moved to the sofa, and she was looking through the papers, nodding her head like a battered old sea turtle fighting the pull of gravity. But she turned to him at last and said, My offer is final. You might have known that. He fought himself, tried to get hold of his voice. He told her he'd think about it, sleep on it. He'd sleep on it and have an answer for her in the morning. It was raining again, a pulsing, hard-driven rain that sheathed the car and ran slick over the pavement till the parking lot gleamed like the sea beyond it. He didn't want to go back to the cottage in the motor court, not yet, anyway. The thought of it entered his mind like a closed box floating in the void, and he had to squeeze his eyes shut to make it disappear. And he wasn't much of a drinker, so there wasn't any solace in the lights of the bar across the street. Finally, he decided to do what he'd known he was going to do all along. Drive out to the house and have a last look at it. Things would have to be sold, he told himself. Things stored, winnowed, tossed into the trash. As soon as he pulled into the dirt drive that dropped off the road and into the trees, he could see he'd been fooling himself. The place was an eyesore, vandalized and vandalized again, the paint gone, windows shattered, the porch skewed away from the foundation as if it had been shoved by the hand of a giant. He switched off the ignition and stepped out into the rain. Inside there was nothing of value, graffiti on the walls, a stained mattress in the center of the living room every stick of furniture broken down and fed to the fire, toilet bowl smashed and something dead in the pit of it, rodent or bird, it didn't matter. He wandered through the room, stooping to pick things up and then dropped them again. For a long while, he stood at the kitchen sink, staring out into the rain. The summer the Rastros drowned, he'd lived primitive, out on the water all day, every day, swimming, fishing, crabbing, racing from island to shore and back again under the belly of his sail. That was the year his parents had their friends from the city out to stay, the Morses, Mr. Morse, ventricose and roaring with his head set tenuously atop the shaft of his neck as if they'd given the wrong size at birth. And Mrs. Morse, her face drawn to a point beneath the bleached bird fluff of her hair, and a woman who worked with his mother as a secretary, a divorcee with two shy, pretty daughters his own age. What was the woman's name? Jean. And the daughters? He could no longer remember, but they wore sunsuits that left their legs and midriffs bare, the field of their taut brown flesh a thrill and revelation to him. He couldn't look them in the face. Couldn't even pretend... But they went off after a week to be with their father, and the, and the Morses and Jean stayed on with his parents, sunning outside in the vinyl lawn chairs, 
drinking and playing cards so late in the night that their voices, murmurous, shrill suddenly, murmurous again, were like the disquisitions of the birds that wakened him at dawn to go down to the shore and the boat and the sun that burned the chill off the water. There was something tumultuous going on amongst them, all five of them, but he didn't understand what it was till he looked back on it years later. It was something sexual, that much he knew. Something forbidden and shameful and emotionally wrought. He lay in his bed upstairs, 12 years old and discovering his own body, and they shouted recriminations at each other a floor down. Mr. Morse took him and Jean out fishing for Pollock one afternoon, the big man shirtless and rowing, Jean in the bow, an ice bucket sprouting a bristle of green-necked bottles between them. He fished, baited his hook with squid, and dropped the weighted line into the shifting gray deep. Behind him, Mr. Morse slipped his hand up under Jean's blouse, and they kissed and wriggled against one another until they couldn't seem to catch their breath even as he peered down into the water and pretended he didn't notice. He remembered a single voice raised in agony that night, a voice caught between a sob and a shriek. And in the morning, Mrs. Morris was gone. A few days later, her husband got behind the wheel of Jean's car and the two of them pulled out of the drive. Nobody said a word. He sat with his parents at dinner. Coleslaw, corn on the cob, hamburgers his father seared on the grill. And nobody said a word. He was back at the motor court by five, and he called Ruth just to hear the sound of her voice and to lie to her about the old lady's offer. Yes, he told her, yes. It was just what he expected, and he'd close the deal tomorrow, no problem. Yes, he loved her. Yes, good night. Then, though he wasn't a drinker, he walked into the village and sat at the bar while the Celtics went through the motions up on the television screen and the six or seven patrons gathered there either cheered or groaned as the occasion demanded. He let two beers grow warm by the time he got to the bottom of them, and he had a handful of saltines to steady his stomach. He was hoping someone would mention Mrs. Rastro offer up some information about her, some gossip about what she was doing to the island, about Rose. But nobody spoke to him. Nobody even looked at him. By 7.30, he was back in the cottage, paging through a half dozen back issues of News Magazine. The woman at the desk had given him with an apologetic thrust of her hand. And she was sorry they didn't have any TV for him to watch, but maybe he'd be interested in these magazines. He was reading of things that had happened five years ago, big stories, crises, and he couldn't for the life of him remember how any of them turned out when there was a knock at the door. It was Rose, dressed in a bulky sweater and blue jeans. The black patent leather pumps she'd been wearing earlier had been replaced by tennis shoes. Her ankles were bare. Hi, she said. I thought I'd drop by to see how you were doing. Everything in him seemed to seize up. How was he doing? He was doing poorly, feeling trapped and bereft, 
pressed for money, for luck, for hope. So worried about Ruth and her doctors and the tests and prescriptions and bills, he didn't know how he was going to survive the night ahead, let alone the rest of the winter and the long unspooling year to come. Mrs. Rastro, her employer, her ally, had cut the heart out of him, so how was he doing? Couldn't even open his mouth to tell her. They were both standing at the open door. The night smelled like an old dish rag that had been frozen and defrosted again. Because I felt bad this afternoon, she said. I mean, not even offering you something to drink or a sandwich. Alice can be pretty abrupt, and I wanted to apologize. Okay, he said. Sure, I appreciate that. He was in his stocking feet. His shirt opened the collar to reveal the T-shirt beneath, and was it clean? His hair, had he combed his hair? Okay, he said again, not knowing what else to do. Do you have a minute? She peered into the room as if it might conceal something she needed to be wary of. Her shoulders were bunched, her eyes grown wide. The night air leaked in around her, carrying a sour, lingering odor now of panic and attrition. A skunk. Somebody had surprised a skunk somewhere out there on the road. Suddenly she was smiling. I guess I'm the potato peeler salesman now, huh? No, he said, no, too forcefully. And he didn't know what he was up to and or what she was up to, a young woman who lived with an old woman and wore tight silk Chinese dresses on an island that had no Chinese restaurants and no need of them. <laughs> and then he was pulling the door back and inviting her in, their bodies pressed close in passing, and the door shutting behind them. She took the chair, he the bed, I'd offer you something, he said, but... <laughs> and he threw up his hands, and they both laughed. Was he drunk? <laughs> Two beers on an empty stomach, was that it? I brought you something, she said, snapping open her purse to remove a brown paper bag and set it on the night table. There were oil stains on the bag, translucent continents, headlands, isthmuses painted across the surface in a random geography. Tuna, she said. <laughs> Tuna on rye, I made them myself. And these, lifting the sandwiches in their opaque paper from the bag and holding two cans of beer aloft. I thought you'd be hungry with the diner closing early, I mean. She pushed the beer across the table and handed him a sandwich. I didn't know if you'd know that, that they close early this time of year. He told her he hadn't known or he'd forgotten or... Hadn't even thought of it, really. And he thanked her for thinking of him. They sipped their beers in silence a moment. The light on the night table, the only illumination in the room. And then he said, You know, that house belonged to my father. That's his signature on the deed. We spent summers here when I was a kid. Best summers of my life. I was here when Mrs. Rastro's, when Ronald and Elise drowned. I was maybe 12 at the time, and I, I didn't really 
I, I didn't understand you could die, not if you were young. Up till that point, it was old people who died, the lady next door, Mrs. Jennings, uh, my grandmother, a uh, great aunt. She just nodded, but he could see she was right there with him, the brightness in her eyes, the way she chewed, sipped. He felt the beer go to his head. He wanted to ask about her, how she'd come to the island. Was it an ad in the paper? Lumber heiress in need of a companion to wear silk Chinese dresses in a remote cottage? <laughs> Room and board and stipend and all the time in the world to paint, write, dream? But he didn't want to be obvious. She was exotic. Chinese. The only Chinese person on the island. And it would be rude, maybe even faintly racist, to ask. He watched her tuck the last corner of her sandwich in her mouth and tilt back the can to drain it. She wiped her lips with a paper napkin, then settled her hands over her knees and said, you know, it's no use. She's never going to go any higher. He was embarrassed suddenly to bring all that into this, and he just shrugged. It was a fait accompli. He was defeated and he knew it. She knows about your wife. And you know she could pay a fair price even though the place is run down because it's not the money. She has all the money anybody could want, but she won't. I know her, she won't budge. She lifted her face so that the light cut it in two, the ridge of her nose and one eye shining, the rest in shadow. She's just going to let it rot anyway. That's what she's doing with all of them. Spoils her view. She smiled. Something like that. Then the question he'd been swallowing since she'd appeared at the door finally pried up off his tongue by the beer. This isn't some kind of negotiation, is it? I mean, she didn't send you, did she? The question left a space for all the little sounds of the night to creep in. The cry of a shorebird, the wind scouring the beach, something ticking in the depths of the heater. She dropped her eyes. No, that's not it at all, she murmured. Well, what is it then, he wanted to say, almost said, but he felt a tightening across the surface of him, his flesh prickling and contracting as if all his defenses were going down at once. And the answer came to him. She was here for him. For a quick fix from loneliness and despair. Here to listen to a voice beside Mrs. Rastro's. To sleep in another bed, any bed. Make contact where before there had been none. He got up from the bed, moved awkwardly toward her, and she got up too. They were as close as they'd been at the door. He could smell her, a sweet heat rising from the folds of her sweater, caught in the coils of her hair. Did you want to maybe go over to the tavern, she said, for another beer? I mean, I only brought the two. He didn't want another beer, hadn't wanted the first one. No, he said in a whisper. And then he was holding her, pulling her to him as if 
She had no bones in her body, everything new and soft and started from scratch. Her cheek was pressed to his scintillating electric, her cheek, and she let him kiss her and her bones were gone. She was melting down away from the chair and into the bed. She didn't taste like Ruth, didn't feel like her, didn't conform to him the way Ruth had all those years when she was well and alive and lit up like a meteor. And he had to say something. He didn't have any choice. I, I don't think so, he said. I'm sorry, I really don't. She was beneath him on the bed, her hair in a sprawl. He pulled away from her, pushed himself up as if he were doing some sort of exercise, calisthenics of the will, the heaviest of heavy lifting. And before he knew what he was doing, he was out the door and into the night. He thought he heard a call out his name, but the surf took it away. He was furious, raging, pounding his way down the dark strand as if every step was a murder. That dried up old bitch. Who does she think she is anyway? A sudden wind came up off the shore to rake the trees. The branches rattling like claws and the smell assaulted him again. The smell of rottenness and corruption of animals and their glands. He kept walking the wind in his face, head down, shoulders pumping. His... He followed his legs till he got beyond the lights of the farthest house and the sky closed down and melded with the shore. There was something there ahead on the beach, a shape spawned from the shadows and it took him a moment to see what it was, a trash can. Let's all pitch in and keep the island clean, turned on its side in a spill of litter. And inside the can, the animal itself, coiled round the wedge of its head and the twin lights of its eyes. Get out of that, he shouted, looking for something to throw. Get out! In the morning, he made his way back up the long dirt drive and signed away the property. By noon, he was gone. If you like our podcast, you'll find volumes of stories by the one and only T.C. Boyle, a genius of the short story form, as well as other authors that we feature on the podcast at bookshop.org. T.C. Boyle is the author of 30 books of fiction, including The Harder They Come, The Terranauts, The Relieve Box, Outside Looking In, Talk to Me, and his recent short story collection, I walk between the raindrops. Special thanks to longtime friend of Word Theater, Xander Berkeley. Xander is a renowned actor with over 200 film and television credits, some of which I'm sure you're familiar with, like Candyman, Air Force One, and The Mandalorian. If you're enjoying these performances, we'd love you to head over to our website, wordtheater.org, and become an annual patron or enthusiast member. You'll gain access to our treasure trove of past performances, and there are all sorts of perks that come your way throughout the year. 
Plus, you have the pleasure of knowing that you're helping to support this podcast and our work in under-resourced schools, where we make live performances available, and our new website, Word Theatre Campus, is making recordings of the stories from our archive available to educators and students. Special thanks to you all for listening. We truly love what we do here, and to bring these stories to life for you is everything to us. Not only do we put on this podcast, but we also hold events throughout the year, so come see us in action. Head over to wordtheater.org to learn more and join the Word Theater family. Special thanks to Ola Strom, our philanthropist benefactor, to Jonathan Sachs for composing our theme music, to the Los Angeles County Department of Arts and Culture for their ongoing support. We have a new intern on board, Riley Fox, so welcome, Riley, and thanks to Jason Lee, our podcast editor. Thanks for listening. This is Cedaring Fox. Until next week, signing off. <laughs>